Miracy. We as humans have this bizarre, we all do it. We match our inside feelings to somebody's outside, you know, appearances. So, you know, somebody says, I feel this way. And somebody else says, well, that must be because of this, you know, (laughs) and the only remedy for that is instead of like diagnosing and telling, it's asking questions. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead as Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact, clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by blending the art and science of leading with intention. I talk with top business leaders who exemplify the principles of Leading Large, They know that as leaders, the influence they have comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, they prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy work environment for their employees. We learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. My guest today is Amanda Tucker. Amanda is an experienced international leader with a demonstrated history of innovation in both sustainability and global operations. She has more than 25 years of experience as a leader in nonprofits, government, academia, and corporate organizations, including stints at the United Nations, at Nike, and now at Target. Amanda and I originally met when she was working on her master's in management science at Stanford. We had some great conversations back then about leadership, and I'm so grateful that Amanda is here to share some of what she's learned across the arc of her impressive career. As we explore some of the challenges Amanda has faced on her leadership journey, listen for her insights on surviving a crisis of confidence, asking team members for help, and why leaders should never say, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. We'll talk about the problems with heroic leadership the idea that leaders always know the answers and will swoop in to save the day, and what works better in the real world from her point of view. And Amanda will share how she's learned to adapt her leadership across different cultures as she's worked overseas in several different countries. Welcome to the show, Amanda. It's great to see you today, and I'm especially happy to have you on on International Women's Day. Thank you so much, Sharon. I was so excited when you reached out, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thanks, me too. So maybe you could start by just telling our listeners a little bit about the companies you've been at and a little bit about your journey and maybe just a snippet about what you're doing right now. Yes, I'd be happy to do that. I didn't have a linear career path by any stretch of the imagination. So I, you know, as an undergraduate, was planning to go to law school. And around senior year of my undergraduate years, I went to Europe and I decided, you know, after I graduate, I want to move to Europe. I experienced the French culture and I thought law school seems a little dry. I would rather spend some time in France. So I actually did my uh, graduate studies in Europe. And my first job was in a nonprofit called the U.S. Council for International Business that represents U.S. companies and international organizations. And I was working in New York City for USCIB for five years. 
mainly on European Union affairs and international labor affairs. And then I made a bit of a pivot and moved back to Europe to Geneva, Switzerland to work for the International Labor Organization, which is one of the specialized agencies of the United Nations. And I was working in the area of child labor, looking at ways to eliminate particularly hazardous forms of child labor. I was primarily working in Southeast Asia and East Africa. And after about three years with the ILO, I moved back to the United States to Nike to help set up the labor practices department. When I go back and look at my career, it sounds like it all made sense and I had some sort of master plan. But for anybody that's listening to this, including maybe younger people who are just starting out, I didn't have a master plan at all. And in fact, I remember being kind of insecure at times about my choices because they were a little different from what other people I knew were doing. You know, I didn't start out going to a known company or, you know, I aborted my plan to go to law school, which had been my plan for years. So, you know, I followed my heart and my passions and my desire for adventure and international experience. And I leaned into issues I cared about, like social justice um, and sustainability, but I didn't have, you know, a master career plan. But I really do believe when you follow your heart and your passions, it works out you know, in the end. So I would just like to say that as a kind of a disclaimer, but you specifically asked about leadership. I think that you grow into leadership and, you know, I didn't start out thinking, oh, I want to be, you know, a leader of a lot of people. What I knew is that I liked people and I wanted to have an impact. And that led me to positions where, you know, I was leading people and, you know, I've really had to grow and develop as a person and as a leader. And I'm still, you know, I'm still learning and growing and develop. I don't think you've ever really arrived in that sense. Agree. So let's see, do you have a particular way that you think about the principles of leadership that matter to you or particular approach that you have? You know, I remember a few times where I experienced a crisis of confidence. And So the first time I really experienced a crisis of confidence, I think, was my first big leadership role, which was an international role. And, you know, I was put into a position managing a a big team in Asia, and I really had not led on that scale before. And I remember just waking up some days just being kind of internally panicked, thinking, well, they probably made a mistake. I really don't know what I'm doing you know, feeling honestly intimidated by some of the people I was there to manage, considering that they had a lot more experience than I did. And I really remember one morning, well, let me go back a little bit. I talked to some people about this. And in, in one case, I talked to another female leader that I really admired. And she said, well, you know, you kind of have to fake it till you make it. And I remember thinking, but I don't like the idea of faking it. Like I, I like to be authentic and my authentic self it's a little bit freaked out right now, you know, and I remember going on a run one morning and it's such a clear memory to me. I remember thinking, hey, your feeling on whether or not you're qualified for this job is really irrelevant because you've been hired for this job. So the company that's paying you believes in you. So how you feel about it is kind of irrelevant. You've got to just, you know, lean into this. And Somehow that was liberating to me because I think I had gotten so caught up into how I felt about it and my feeling at that time of being insufficient or inexperienced that I Mm. forgot, you know, you're paid to do a job. Somebody believes in you. And 
you know, I think particularly as female leaders, sometimes we doubt that, even though there's lines of people saying, you know, we believe in you and you've been hired to do it. We have these self-doubts, right? And I think that that's Mm. a very common feeling. So I had to learn to kind of admit those feelings of inadequacy, but lean into the things that I did know that, you know, I was hired for certain qualifications and I had certain skills. And I think the flip side of this is to realize what I didn't know and and to be okay admitting that and going to people who reported to me to say, hey, you know, this is an area I'm managing, but I know very little about it. Can you help me learn? And that was powerful. And how did people react when you did that? Oh, it was fantastic. You know, I, I wish more leaders felt comfortable going to their team and saying, I don't know. I mean, the reality is, your team doesn't expect you to know everything. If you knew everything, why would you need a team? And so what I found when I would go to people that reported to me and say, I don't know about your area. I mean, think about how empowering and motivating was that for them? Because all of a sudden they had a leader that was wanting to spend time with them learning what they you know, did and putting myself in a position of being the one being educated. And I think sometimes this is where it's easy to fall into the trap of a leader of thinking you have to know and coming across to your team as I'm telling you, I know the answer. And that is a surefire way to lose the, the, the heart of your people. You know, so me getting more vulnerable with them to admit, I really don't understand this terminology or I don't understand this work, help me to understand, was not only beneficial for me, but it would also built up a level of trust with my team. Mm, I bet that's true. And then you were going to say there were a couple of other moments. I think you started to say. Yeah, I mean, I've been in that situation repeatedly. So you kind of think in your career, oh, okay, I've gone through this crisis of confident once and I've kind of come through it, so I'm good. The reality is that's not not the case. I think that this these things tend to appear anytime you're out of your comfort zone. You know, so I experienced that again when I was put into leadership of a functional area that I had very little expertise in. And, mm. um, you know, I had to go back to that playbook of being vulnerable and uh, onboarding basically a group of supporters around me, no matter what position they were in the company, to help guide me in, in, in the decision making. And then also, you know, late in my career, switching to a completely new company, that definitely gets you out of your comfort zone. And you go back into this position of, of realizing, well, I, you know, I, th- there's more things I don't know than I do know, and just that process of being transparent with people. Mm, that's great. Were there other uh, moments you can think of over the arc of, of your career where you had to face some truth about yourself or see something you didn't know about yourself or, I don't know, what were some of those other pivotal moments that helped you refine and shape? Okay, that's a great question. And so um, I remember earlier in my career, I had one individual and every time we would have a team meeting and I would speak, I would see this person's, you know, face contorting. And I physically felt like, you know, this person was just rejecting my ideas. And, you know, at that point, I thought if you reject my ideas, you reject me too. I mean, that's kind mm-hmm. of where I was. And I remember just feeling unsettled about it. And I thought, well, I have to try something here. So I got together with this person over lunch and I, I literally said to her, why don't you like me? You know? And she looked totally confused, of course. You know, why wouldn't she be confused? That was a bizarre thing to say. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, every time I speak, you know, you do this. First of all, she was unaware of that with her own facial construct. And two, she said, well, it's not that I don't like you. Sometimes I don't understand where you're going, you know, because I can tend to be very big picture, you know, focused and not focused on the details. And she was very detail focused. 
we talked through that and we ended up having a fabulous working relationship because she gave me something that I needed, which was that attention to detail. And I gave her something that she needed, which was that visionary piece. And and it was fantastic. And I think what I learned from that is if you shrink away from controversy, you are essentially silencing, you're, you're depriving the group of something that's needed, which is your point of view. And, you know, now as a leader, I've actually tried to generate controversy because we all can fall victim to groupthink, right? And you have to be careful about this as the leader that people are incentivized to sort of say, oh, that's a great idea. You know, we'll do that. Right. So we we like to have in our in our team, you know, the notion of the devil's advocate, somebody who's appointed to, to, to challenge thought. And, um, you know, that can that can be uncomfortable. Um, but it's a really good practice just to not only like be open to controversy or negative feedback, but to actually encourage it and make it a norm. Mm, yeah. When you were describing this, it reminded me of feedback I got really early in my career, too, of people finding me intimidating and thinking I was arrogant. And I'd never, ever thought of myself like that. And it was really hard to take on board. But I think what was really interesting about it was trying to figure out what specifically was going on that gave gave people that impression. And so in your story, what I really love is when you ask the question, why don't you like me? And the other woman was confused. What's great is like she didn't know about her facial expressions and you interpreted them. And so both of you were having impact you didn't intend, which to mm-hmm. me is like the juiciest place to go for feedback. So anyway. Yeah. And we as humans have this bizarre, we all do it. We match our inside feelings to somebody's outside, you know, appearances. So somebody says, I feel this way. And somebody else says, well, that must be because of this, you know. <laughs> and the only remedy for that is instead of like diagnosing and telling, it's asking questions. And if there's one thing that I've tried to do as I've gotten more mature in my leadership is just ask more questions. Say less, tell less, ask more questions. And what's your thinking behind that? How does that benefit your leadership? I think it's unlocking the potential of the team. You know, it's unlocking the potential of the team. And if you don't ask questions, what you're doing is you're making, you know, let me speak personally. If I don't ask questions, then I'm making my decisions based on my assumptions. And my assumptions are often completely incorrect because they're clouded by my experiences and by the way I interpret my own feelings. So if I see a person that's making a face based on my experience, that means that person doesn't like me. Mm. But that was a faulty assumption, which <laughs> I would never have gotten to unless I'd actually asked a question. It was a right. very, it wasn't a great question. I think I've gotten more sophisticated in my question answer. But, but nevertheless, I had to get curious about that face to realize that my assumption was incorrect. Mm. And so in your current teams, in your current leadership experience, or let's say over the last few years, does that continue to be true? Do you continue to find that asking questions beneficial? Certainly. And it's a skill that I think I'll be working on for the rest of my life because, you know, I'm an extroverted person, I'm a high energy person, and it's easy for me to rush into like, here's my idea, let's do this. Mm. So I really have to ground myself before I go into meetings um, or before I go into an encounter and think about, okay, what do I not know? How would I like to get this information? And in a way, it's sort of a, um, 
it's a it's an intentional effort to slow down in order to ask those questions. And honestly, in this virtual work world, it's even more challenging because, you know, you used to go to a meeting and then you'd walk to the next meeting. You had a little bit of time to process. Now you just push that button and just go right to the next meeting. And so you really, I really find that I have to do even more self-management. Yeah, that's a great observation. And particularly just reflecting on the the peculiarity of all these virtual teams, blended teams, mixed teams, I guess I can imagine how that would be more important than ever, the asking questions and confirming. Another thing I think about a lot is if leaders don't ask questions, they don't ever get to learn about what their employees think, how they think on their own. And, and I think that tendency for extroverted, high energy folks like us to jump in with an idea, it can really inhibit other people bringing their ideas forward. Yes. I think that's so true, Sharon. And um, not only is it a window into what employees think, but the reality is, you know, if you're a leader of any consequence, there is no way you can know everything you need to know for your job because the world is too complex. And so if you're not asking questions, then your area of influence is probably way smaller than you want it to be because you're just not you know, you have just a very narrow filter, probably anchored to your past experience, you know, but every week, (laughs) you know, every month, every year, the world gets more complex. And so, you know, the only anecdote to that is, is harnessing the experience of the whole group. Yes. Well, that's great. So I know it's been a long career arc with lots of venues. Any other moment that you can think of that you think was really powerful in your kind of making you into the leader you are today? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of veering off into a personal, but I think, you know, leadership is about personal and, and, and right, professional. You can't, well, I guess you can compartmentalize them, but I would say that the most impactful leaders are able to bring their personal self to their professional world. And for me, I think one thing that, that was very, a couple things I think were, were very pivotal you know, in terms of my role in sustainability, corporate responsibility, I think the time that I spent in Asia managing um, was really um, pivotal for me because I spent a lot of time, you know, in factories, a lot of time, you know, with managing people of a completely different culture. Mm. And that required me to make personal shifts in the way I managed and to go deeper into understanding the other. So that that was a big one. I mean, it's easy to feel very confident when you've been um, managing kind of in one country or a less diverse population. It's a completely another thing to be, you know, out of your swim lane completely. So that was a big pivot point for me. The other one is just, I had some personal challenges that um, kind of took me by surprise when I was still fairly, you know, early into my career was diagnosed with melanoma and I went through a little bit of a battle there for a year. And I think if anything, that made me just, you can talk in theory about mortality and, you know, realizing that we have a finite amount of time here, but it's another thing completely to feel that and to think about, okay, well, given that, how do I want to have an impact in my career? How do I really want to spend my time? And I think after that, I would say I became more interested in the connection with people and building a connection with people and leaving a legacy of investment in people than I was prior to that. 
And that really kind of spurred my desire to know more about coaching, to be a better coach, to be a better mentor. And I've tried to bring that, I'm sure, very imperfectly, but I've tried to bring that into my management style. That's interesting. I'm just thinking about what you said about being in Southeast Asia. And I'm wondering, was there a a specific example of something that you had to shift that, because I'm not sure if I would know what that would be for me. So I'm just curious, what was that for you? (laughs) As a similarly outgoing, outspoken, high energy uh, woman, I guess. I do remember a moment in particular when I was at Stanford. I used to travel back and forth and you know, when I would come back, I would feel very like I needed to catch up on emails. I think we've all been there. And, mm. um, but when I would come back after an extended time, my teammates would also want to meet with me. And, and this, I was in a culture, you know, Vietnam that, that people are lovely and open and they want to connect. And, you know, I had my door open, but basically I'd be sitting by my, by my desk doing these emails because I felt like I got to catch up on emails. I got to, and, you know, people would kind of come in and I would be like, hey, you know, hang on just a minute. And I'd finish doing my emails. And I got some feedback that the f- team felt like I didn't have time for them, which made me feel very sad because I was just trying to like finish what I was doing so I could focus on them. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I intended. My impact was they felt like that I didn't have time for them. So, you know, I had to make some physical changes to my office so that it was impossible for me once somebody came through the door for me to continue. I mean, I literally had to, I switched things around. So I had to turn around. So I couldn't be uh-huh. both talking to somebody and doing email. That's kind of a tactical example. You know, you may have wanted this like epiphany oh, no, example, but, but it was like a shift for me because I realized, I think, you know, maybe in a different culture, that would have been okay. Hang on just a second. I'm, I'm working on this. But in the culture that I was in, people were finding that hurtful. I didn't know it. So I had to make some shifts in my, in my you know, physical environment. I have to say, though, I think, Amanda, that that's actually even more powerful in some ways because those little physical, tactical things we can do sometimes have a much bigger impact than we could ever imagine. Now, I did notice that when we were, when I was getting ready to chat with you today, that you had been through Brene Brown's Dare to Lead training. And I wondered, first of all, what led you to pursue that? And then I'm curious how you think your leadership changed as a consequence of that or or how did it help you in the next bit of evolution maybe is a better way to ask it. Well, probably like, you know, most every other leader. <laughs> I love Brene Brown. <laughs> You know, I, I had the opportunity to see her a couple of times. I love to listen to her podcasts and books. And if you think about what's in there, a lot of that is, you know, you sort of know that intuitively, but it's so um, enriching to have these examples and to feel connected to some of these stories. And I think for me, I went through that at a time where I felt like organizationally there was a bit of a tension between two concepts of leadership, essentially. Um, more command and control leadership and more um, authentic, um, empathetic leadership. And uh, I, I really wanted to understand the um, science behind transparent, empathetic leadership. And so that's why I went through the Dare to Lead. And it really gave me a renewed commitment to lean into authenticity. And I think you still find leaders that will, would almost consider leaders that are being more vulnerable, more transparent would sort of judge that and say, hey, that's not their way to really get elevated. But mm. 
I, I think for me, that's that that was really the only way to lead. And and I love Brene Brown's Dare to Lead program because I also could see empirically the the benefits of leadership in that way. And it, it gave me some useful tools too to keep checking up on myself. I mean, it's hard. Authentic leadership is hard and it's easy to fall back into old patterns, particularly when we're under pressure. And so how have you incorporated that into the way that you're leading your team? You know, she talks about radical candor. Um, this is something that we're working on. You know, if my team were listening to this, they'd probably, they might say, we still have a long way to go. But, you know, we do have regular conversations about what are the norms that we created for ourselves in terms of how we want to deal with ourselves. You know, one area that we're continuing to work on is going directly to the person that you have an issue with rather than going to somebody else. And that's a, (laughs) any of us that, you know, have friends or families or colleagues know that it's really hard to go to the person that you have the problem with and it's really easy to go to somebody else. I see that all the time in the, in the workplace. Somebody comes to me and says, hey, you know, this person's not aware of it. And, you know, what I try to do in that situation is say, why is that happening? Why do we not have the feeling of comfort to go to the person, you know, who is, who is, uh, you feel this discomfort with and have that conversation? Um, and again, I think it comes to practice. I think people inherently want to be nice. They want to have a harmonious relationship. And so, you know, it's, it seems hard at the time to, to go and have that conversation. But if you don't have that trust and that intimacy to do it, you'll never have a cohesive um, feeling of trust in your team. Yeah. And I think that might be, I think we just, that's the first time you've mentioned trust. And I do think, because I, as I reflect on it, that that connection and that listening is part of what builds enough trust that people are willing to practice that really uncomfortable conversation. So I don't know if you find that on your team, but it is hard. It really is challenging. Um, I know leaders have a lot to do with setting that example with their teams. And I imagine that uh, that's kind of, that's how you're going about it too, is showing them what it looks like when you do it and then inviting them to mirror that. Yes. And I would not pretend in any way that I do it perfectly, but, you know, if a leader wants to talk about having a, a culture of, you know, trust and transparency, then the leader has to be not only open to feedback, but also to solicit feedback openly. You know, because if a leader says, I'm open to feedback, anybody want to give me feedback? Nobody's, Nobody's going to give feedback. Say a word. <laughs> <laughs> That's a sure way to have no feedback. You know, you have to really like look for the feedback, search for the feedback, want the feedback and be clear about how, why you want the feedback and, 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 and how you want to change as a result of the feedback. And also not overreact when you hear it. <laughs> like welcome it when it's it comes. It's easy to say feedback's a gift, but so but easy. To, to, it's so, I mean, I can say feedback's a gift, but the reality is if, if you um, can, can learn that although it can be hurtful at the beginning, it really is the gift that you need to make you a more well-rounded leader and, and show your team that, that, you know, and sometimes you might admit, ooh, ouch, that, that feedback hurt, but I can see it and I'm going to work on it. That's, that's a powerful thing for the team to experience. That is a very powerful response. And I think that same thing works beautifully in personal life as well. Um, and we're more willing to think about having those conversations sometimes, at least in our families, at least in my family. We have those conversations more often, but it is still harder in the workplace for a range of reasons. I think when people feel that the stakes are high, it's harder. And that can be either in, in a family, a friend, or a work situation. Mm-hmm. So one way to um, 
open up that culture of feedback is to let people know they're safe, that if they give that feedback, there's not going to be retaliation. And I don't mean retaliation in terms of like, you're not going to get the next promotion or you're not going to, it can be micro retaliation. You're not going to, I'm not going to hold a grudge against you. I'm not going to give you the silent treatment. I'm not going to, you know, speak over you. I'm not going to rush you through what you have to say. That's the kind of thing that builds trust. Mm, So true. So um, the title of the podcast, this podcast is To Lead as Human. And I have my own thoughts about why that's my title. But I'm wondering, what does that mean to you as a leader when you think about to lead as human? Well, that's a great question, Sharon. I mean, I think I could look at it um, in a couple ways. One is, I think humans have a desire to lead. I think in each of us is, is a desire to have an impact. And to have an impact, you're, you need to be a leader. And so I think sometimes it's easy for people to say, well, I'm not a leader. I mean, this is, this is the leader and I'm the, but I don't think that's true. I think that we're all called to lead in some way. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's part of just that human desire for impact. So that, that would be the first thing I would say. The second is sometimes there's this notion of this, you know, almost heroic leader, like the leader is this all knowing, you know, elevated persona. And I, and I think that that's so unhelpful on so many levels. I mean, we're all just a whole big mess of complicated emotions and experiences and backgrounds. And we're at the end of the day, all just trying to do the best that we can. And I think when leaders can be more honest about, you know, their strengths, but also their weaknesses, um, and just speak to them, they'll find a receptivity and a connection that maybe they didn't expect. And I certainly did, like the experience I told you in Vietnam when when I sort of admitted to a few people, hey, I have no idea about this area I'm leading, you know, and, and I thought it was kind of scary at the beginning because I thought they might think, well, why the heck are you my boss? You know, but I got the opposite reaction, like, well, let me help you understand that. That's great. I know one of the concerns that some leaders have is is whether it's really worth it to themselves personally or to their company to embark on this journey of becoming more fully human as a leader. And, and maybe you could speak a little bit, what, what might you say to someone who's questioning whether that's worth the, the cost? So the time, as you said, it takes practice, it takes attention, it's a certain amount of investment. And I just wonder, what might you say to someone who's got that skepticism? And I don't know, maybe there are, are there any hard metrics? That's a hard one for me because it's hard to imagine. I mean, to me, the question is, do you want to be a, what, do you, what is a leader, first of all? What, what are we talking about when we say a leader? I, I have people on my team currently that manage no people and they are amazing leaders. They are the ones influencing the culture, making things happen. So I don't think being a leader has anything to do with how many people report to you. You know, that's more being a manager. Mm. Okay, so if you take away that construct and say that a leader is somebody who is having an impact on others, right? And then the question is, you know, what alternative is there to leading as a human? I mean, are you, how attractive is it to lead as a robot? So that's a little bit of a, it's hard for me to understand what the person's paradigm might be if it's not leading as a human. I think, I think what you're getting at is, you know, what are the costs of leading transparently or Mm. leading authentically or leading? And, you know, I think there somebody has to, first of all, understand what their gifts are. Not everybody is going to be this hugely open book leader, but that doesn't mean that they can't connect 
or that they, you know, can't offer a listening, you know, mindset. We're all different in terms of our leadership style. I think the real question that people need to consider is why is it that you want to have more and poor people under you and get clear about that? Is it because you want more seniority? Do you think that that's the path to more impact? I think individuals need to be much more clear on what their leadership goals are. And I don't think it's a linear relationship between number of people in my organization and my impact. And I know that's not exactly the question that you asked, but I think it is something that sometimes isn't considered Mm. fully by people as they explore different career paths in front of them. I think that's an excellent point. And it's definitely related to the question, because I think part of what I've heard anyway is, well, I don't know, you know, I'm not a touchy-feely person or I don't, you know, I'm not a very empathetic person. So I don't think I could lead that way and have it feel honest, I guess. Or maybe they're holding that mindset that you mentioned earlier about command and control. So I think those are more the kinds of mental stuck places that might get in somebody's way of being willing to kind of lean into that more human side. And I agree with you. There is this sort of cultural belief that somehow the leader knows all, sees all, is somehow above. We, we draw these org charts in ways that are not helpful in that regard. But I think, you know, this idea of being more lateral in the, in the leadership and thinking about impact and influence maybe is a, is a helpful transition for people to think about. How do I have more influence? And does it come through having more people? And there are some organizations where the bigger your organization, the more power you have in the organization. And I think that culturally companies are different. So that can happen. Mm-hmm. But anyway, are there any kind of metrics that you could point to where you could say, you know, when I didn't lead, well, I mean, it's hard because you have been a very open leader throughout your journey is what it sounds like. But I wonder whether things are different now in your leadership, having so much more experience and, and personal growth and evolution. Do you think there are different outcomes from your leadership? And how would you, how would you assess that? That's a hard one because it's other than sort of employee voice surveys, which tend to, people tend to write the last emotion that they had rather than think back through the last six months. So, you know, that's always good to look at those, but you also have to consider, you know, that that's a point in time. Yeah. So, you know, the best information that you can get is just by regularly checking in with your team. And that's more, you know, anecdotal information. It's, it's, it's not so quantitative and it's hard to come up with KPIs in this area. So I think you have to somehow gauge uh, the sense of belonging, you know, to really measure your impact as an authentic leader, because, you, you know, there should be a correlation between your team's sense of belonging and and sense of, you know, camaraderie and your own sense of belonging. And and I can say that since I've been, you know, when I can tell you that when I've had positions or been in some leader positions where I didn't feel that my leader had that connectivity to me or provided the environment for belonging, I myself felt constricted as a leader and my own sense of belonging kind of plummeted. And work became kind of very stressful and laborious. And um, when I'm in an environment where I feel that, you know, I'm, I, I belong and I'm creating a culture of belonging, it becomes lighter, yes. you know, things become more fun. Even in the face of really severe challenges, there's just this feeling of, hey, we're in it together. And I don't know how to put a KPI into that because it's a heart feeling. 
But I can definitely think back at various portions of my career where, you know, despite some of the hardest things we went through, we were in it together and we felt that sense of belonging and camaraderie. And I can think of other instances where, you know, I didn't have that. And it, it really took the morale down and, you know, it made work feel like, like a burden. And, you know, I want to be a leader who creates a feeling of belonging for the team. That's lovely. So I always like to wrap up with giving each guest a chance to share one perspective on leadership or piece of advice or a tactic to offer other business leaders who do want to build these workplaces that are places where people feel belonging and feel engaged and feel valued. Offer all of yourself, all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly. If you're compartmentalizing yourself so that you're bringing to your workplace, you know, the part of you that you like and you're depriving the workplace and those around you the rest of yourself, you're never going to have a fully engaged relationship. So, you know, we all have aspects of ourselves that we love and we're very quick to show those things off and even talk about those things and showcase them. But connect, real connectivity, you know what? Real connectivity is showing all of yourself, right? And still being appreciated and have that sense of belonging. And as you as a leader can get more comfortable you know, sharing with your team the parts of yourself that you maybe are more insecure about and, 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 and can feel that your team is still with you, then you will have that sense of belonging. And when you model that, your team will start to model that. And then you can bring all of yourself to the workplace. And I think that, that is, that's hard to do, but it's so powerful. I can't think of a better place to end the conversation today than that. It's just so powerful. So a huge thank you to you, Amanda, for joining us today. Amanda. I'm going to guess people might want to know how they can find you. If they have a question for you, where can people find out more about you? What's the best way to be in touch? I'm on LinkedIn. (laughs) So is that the best place? Yes, that's the best place. Unless you happen to be hiking the hill country in the Columbia River Gorge. Ooh, that seems like a nice place to have a conversation. Thank you so much for being here today. And thank you for sharing your experiences and your stories with our listeners. Thanks so much, Sharon, for the opportunity. Stick around for another few minutes as I suggest some next steps you might take on your own leadership journey. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. What an amazing career Amanda has had so far, and she's not done yet. As I reflect on this conversation, there are a few things we talked about that I'd like to call out. First, Amanda gave us a master class in learning from feedback, whether invited or not. In the case where she asks her colleague why they didn't like her, one blurted out question, awkward in retrospect, led to some mutual insights, and they subsequently developed a great working relationship where each of their strengths complemented the others. Amanda gave a great example of how taking the risk to ask for feedback, even inelegantly, can help surface assumptions, build trust, 
and form the foundation for a very meaningful work partnership. Amanda also noted a time when she felt tension in her organization between more of a command and control style of leadership and the style she preferred, a more authentic, empathetic approach. Studying with Brene Brown's Dare to Lead program gave Amanda the scientific grounding she needed to affirm her choice of leadership strategies. And she continues to practice intentionally leading with vulnerability and promoting both care and candor on her teams. One thing Amanda added is that she learned to give herself grace when she was struggling with her own doubts or fears. Perhaps the most powerful takeaway for me and the one that I most resonate with is Amanda's insight that because she's a fast mover and fast thinker and likes to get quickly to action, she needs to intentionally slow herself down so she can ask questions, listen well, and learn from her team's experience. She says it's the best way she's been able to keep up with the relentless complexity of her world as she's become more and more senior and to harness the expertise of her entire team. If you're ready to take a next step in your leadership, where should you start? Do you need to ask for feedback from your team and learn a little more about how you're experienced? Do you need to slow yourself down in meetings? Or maybe you need to ask more questions in general. If you're not quite sure, here's a way you can find out. Track your meeting participation over the next few days or week and make a note of how often in each meeting you make a statement telling your position versus asking a question, seeking to understand another's point of view. Give yourself extra points if you follow up your first question with more curiosity rather than offering a yes but or even a yes and. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead as Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead as Human is part of the Mirror CFM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Gobertson assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer and post-production is provided by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, please leave us a starred review and tell your colleagues about us. It really does help spread the word about how to better lead as a human being. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on To Lead as Human. Miracy. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, Making it. it. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. 
not only like making money, but make a difference, make a contribution. contribution, like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it to me really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts. No shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.